We are so glad that you have chosen to stream this audio, and we hope it will encourage you in your faith and your walk towards Christ-likeness. As a side note, we pray that this audio sermon is just supplemental in your relationship with Christ and in no way replaces the church you are plugged into or the pastor that God has put in your life to shepherd and care for your soul. And so with that said, please enjoy this sermon. We have prayed that God would use it in your life. Well, good morning. It's good to be back with you. It's funny, I was thinking as I was coming up here how time changes things. And, I mean, 174 years, a lot of things have changed. But one of the things that just was in my mind is how the pulpit has changed. (laughs) Right? I mean, when I first came, we had that massive white pulpit that dwarfed me. And now we have a bar table. And it's (laughs) fantastic, I guess. Uh, I remember I, I never wore anything but suits. And now, like, I come back and preach to you guys. I'm in jeans. So, so many changes. So many changes. All right. It is good to be back. Good to see each and every one of you. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 16. So we think about the church and who we are as a church, the church of Christ. The church is built upon the confession of who Christ is. In fact, that is the only reality that causes us to be here in this place, gathered together to worship, uh, worship our God. And so uh, let us look together at chapter 16 of Matthew, beginning in verse 13, down to verse 20. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray again together. Father, we pray that you would use this text this morning in our midst to spur us to greater faithfulness to Christ, He would encourage us to think deeply about what it means to be a church, to be able to proclaim the message of Christ faithfully to our neighbors and even to the nations. And so we ask now, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, people say that behind every fairy tale is an element of truth. And this is true for Guillermo del Toro's film, Pan's Labyrinth. It came out in 2006. If you're not familiar with the movie, or if you don't like foreign films, you know, maybe it's not for you. But the movie itself is quite interesting. And it's this fairy tale of a princess, a princess named Moana, unrelated to the Disney princess, I think. 
But her father is the king of the underworld, or Hades. And the princess, she visits the human world, but when she visits the human world, she's blinded by the light, she can't see, and it erases her memory of who she is. And so the movie picks up with this story, and it happens in 1944 in Francois, Spain, with this young girl, and her name is Ophelia. And she is at this house, and she finds this incredibly elaborate stone labyrinth. And she's met by this creature, this creature who seems to be both goat and man, comes to her, a fawn, and he believes that Ophelia is the lost princess of the underworld. And so he wants to take her back to the underworld, take her back to her father. But she has to perform three very important tasks to prove who she is. And in the end, she sacrifices herself to save her baby brother and thereby proves her worth to go back. So the fawn takes her back to the underworld where she's met then by her father, who is the king. Now, this is a story about Pan. The real story of Pan is a little bit darker than even that one. There was a Greek god in the Greek pantheon of gods named Pan who was worshipped as a god, but he was worshipped because he was supposed to be in control of the wilds. He was supposed to be in control of the shepherds and the flocks and nature itself. And he was believed to have horns and to have legs like a goat, but his upper body was that of a human being. And he was a fearsome creature. He was believed to capture people and kill people in the woods. He was terrifying. In fact, Pan was known to be able to to give this blood-curdling, angry cry that would fill people with frantic agitation, that they they would be distressed. And today, that, that feeling still bears his name. It's called panic. It's the same individual that has caused that over the centuries. And they said that that Pan, his unseen presence in these lonely places, these these rocky mountainous places, caused people this incredible fear to rush upon them. And he was a rustic god. He was all about nature. And so typically people, when they would come to worship Pan, they would do it in places that were like caves or grottos. Um, But there's one exception to this. And that exception is found in northern Israel, in the region, actually, of Caesarea Philippi. And it's called Panias, or the Temple of Pan. Now, what they would do when they would come together to worship Pan is pretty gruesome. Before the the first century, worshipers would gather in this location, and in this this cave, there was a, a water pool. And that water pool was taking all of the water from Mount Hermon that would come down And it was like this fountain spring, and all of the water would then rush out, and that is where the Jordan River began, at the very very top of Israel. And the people would come there to, to gather and to worship Pan. Now, in order to satiate Pan, they would sacrifice a young child by throwing this child into the water. And if that child disappeared, and if there was no blood down in the the downstream area of the water, then they believed that Pan was satisfied with the sacrifice and they would go on with their worship. This is also, so it's a very dark place. This is also another place where where Herod the Great built an elaborate temple to Caesar. And uh, this was included in this place with, uh, with the temple of Pan. And he created this 
temple where they would be able to worship the God who is Caesar. And then he also built a city that surrounded it and devoted it to his son Philip. And so as a result, you have Caesarea Philippi. All of this is wrapped up in this one location. So it's this out-of-the-way location that Jesus takes his 12 followers to to have this really important conversation, kind of a short conversation. So there's two truths this morning that I want you to glean from this text as we think about the setting and the context of what is taking place. The first one is this. Our understanding of Jesus' identity matters. It really matters. Look back at verse 13 with me. It says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replies, you're the Christ. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus answers him saying, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus takes these 12 men on a three-day walk all the way up to northern Israel for this conversation. At least that's what Matthew seems to indicate. This is the only conversation on the journey that he, he pulls into the narrative. So they go all the way to this location to have this one conversation. I mean, he could have asked this question anywhere, right? He could have asked this question on the Sea of Galilee. He could have asked this question in a boat. I feel like I'm about to go into a Dr. Seuss thing. He could have asked this question anywhere. Doesn't really matter. But the location for some conversations does matter. This place would have been one of the most uncomfortable places in all of Israel for a Jewish person to go to. It would have been like if we decided to have our morning Bible study at the Waverly Hills Sanatorium or something like that. A creepy place a place that you just don't want to go to and you don't do spiritual things there, right? That kind of place. The temple of Pan was believed to be haunted by evil spirits. Caesarea Philippi was a Hellenized city, a Romanized city that that proclaimed the imperial cult and promoted Caesar as being God. But Jesus takes them to this place because they need to understand who he is in light of these things. And so he asked them, who do people say that I am? This is an interesting question. What are the people in the hill countries of Judea saying about me, guys? What are the people surrounding the, the Sea of Galilee in these communities? What are they saying? I mean, they've seen me do all of these different things. They've seen me heal the sick. They've seen me cast out demons. They've seen me feed the multitudes. They've sat under my teaching in Capernaum at the synagogues or all of these other places, even in Jerusalem, what are they saying? And the disciples understood. They, they knew what the opinions were that were out there about who Jesus was. So the first one that they mention is, well, some people think you're John the Baptist. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Now, you remember at this point in the story, John's already dead. Died a couple of chapters before. And he was killed by Herod Antipas. In fact, Herod himself is the one who kind of begins to propagate this belief that Jesus is just John the Baptist, either reincarnated or reinvigorated or whatever it might be. In chapter 14, it says that at that time, Herod the Tetrarch 
heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miracles and these powers are at work in him. The next one that they mentioned is Elijah. They believe that maybe Elijah has been reborn. So when you think about the stories found in the Old Testament about Elijah, there were some who believed that Elijah was going to reappear because technically he didn't actually die. He was taken up in a whirlwind and in chariots of fire. You remember the story. And the, the root of this belief is found in Malachi chapter 4. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. If you remember the stories of Elijah, Elijah was celebrated for his miracles of nature and for healing. And so both of these opinions, these ideas, are kind of moving in the right direction, but they're not quite there yet. The next example is Jeremiah. Some of them were believing that he was Jeremiah, though. The possibility that Jeremiah might return was also a popular belief among the Jews in that day. And references to this are found in some of the historical Jewish books that were written during the intertestamental period. So in 2 Maccabees chapter 15 and also in Ezra chapter 2, it says that Jeremiah is going to show up and he's going to be a helper for the people of Israel. You think about the stories of Jeremiah. He was a prophet who was... was Certainly an example of suffering and rejection, which typifies a lot of what Jesus is experiencing. And he was also a prophet who spoke against the temple in Jerusalem. Now, this hasn't happened necessarily in Matthew's gospel up until this point, but Jesus also was going to emerge as someone who was critical of the temple and what was going on at the temple. But what Jesus says when he's in Nazareth, when he's speaking to probably his, his closest, I guess, family or relatives, people that that knew him well, uh, he, he uses the same kind of language that Jeremiah did. He says that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. So people thought maybe he was Jeremiah. Now, all of these opinions were on the right track. They were, they were positive. They were saying something good about him, but they didn't go far enough. They were too small. So... When you think about the, what is the point of them, Jesus is taking this, these disciples to this pagan high point, and he's not really interested in asking about the people in Israel about what they think. The point is, he wants to get to the point where he's going to ask them the question of what they think. What is causing them to be motivated to follow him, to do the things that he's asking them to do? And so the second question comes on the heels of this first question, and he says, but who do you say that I am. Now, the answer to this question is going to empower them to face tribunals without fear. It's going to empower them to walk bravely into pits filled with wild animals in coliseums. This answer really is important. And so Peter steps up to the front of the group and he answers as the functional head or leader of the group, Now, this is the third time now at this point that Peter has stepped up in this kind of role. The first time we see this when Jesus is walking in the water and Peter calls out to Jesus and he says, if it's you, tell me to come to you. And he gets out of the boat and begins to walk to Jesus. The second time is when Jesus says, Lord, we don't have a clue what you're talking about in this parable. Can you explain the parable to us? And then there's this third time. And he says these words that are most famous as being Peter's confession. 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, there's some very important components to Peter's answer here. The first thing is, he says that Jesus is the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name, right? It's a title. And it's weird that it comes at the back of his name. Should be Christ Jesus. That gets a little bit more rightly. But the, the term itself, when you look at the Old Testament, it draws out this idea of anointing. That he is the Messiah. That he is the one who is anointed by the Lord. That there are promises that were given to the people of Israel, even to King David, that he would have an heir that would sit upon his throne forever. And Jesus is that Messiah. He is that anointed one who would rule over the people of Israel and eventually rule over all of the world as a part of God's kingdom. So Peter gets this right. He is the Christ. He is the king. But then Peter is saying, secondly, something that I think probably is even more important than that, given the context of where they're at, as he says that Jesus is the son of the living God. Peter's saying that Jesus is not, he's not simply an anointed man. That would be great. But it's more than that. He's more than a man. He is, he is God himself. He's saying that Jesus is God. He's of the same essence of God. He is divine. And he's distinct from the gods of the Romans. He's distinct from the gods of the Greeks. Jesus is not the mixture of a goat and a man. He is the divine Son of God. He is the heir to the throne, the heir to the world. Jesus is the Son of the living God, the living God, not the gods of the underworld, not the gods who are associated with death and Hades. He is the promised King, the Son of the living God. Now, Jesus says something really interesting to Peter, and I think sometimes we miss it. We don't see the connection there. He calls Peter something different. Do you notice this? He calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, which was a name that he didn't necessarily call him all the time. I think it was his original name. But he called him Peter. But he calls him Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar meaning son of, and Jonah is just another name. Now, some people will say that, well, this is just, Matthew decided to use a different spelling for the word John, which seems not helpful when you're writing out something, right? I'm just going to throw this one in there, throw a little, my own flair in with the spelling. People do that all the time when they name their kids. It's weird. Simon Bar Jonah. Why does he say Jonah? All of the other references in the Gospel of Matthew, when, it, when, you, when you find the word Jonah, they're really important. Really important. In fact, the only person who says anything about Jonah in Matthew's Gospel is Jesus. That's it. So look at these references. Matthew chapter 12. Jesus is speaking. The Pharisees want a sign, and he answers them. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented and at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Then chapter 16 of verse 4, he says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign 
of Jonah. So he's only used the term a handful of times. Seems awkward that he would use it in a way that doesn't make sense with the rest of the, the references. It seems like Jesus is saying something very specific about, G, about Peter and about his confession. He's saying that Peter is of the lineage of Jonah, declaring the truth of the gospel, declaring God's news, good news to the nations, and even as Peter's doing it, the arrival of Jesus as the Messiah. Potentially, maybe Jesus is even prophetically alluding to Peter's upcoming denial of Jesus and then his restoration like the prophet Jonah. Or maybe even that that Peter would lead the followers of Jesus to take the good news to the nations like the prophet Jonah. What is most clear here is that Jesus affirms Peter's answer as the work of the Spirit of God as he's revealing truth to the disciples. Now, It was so important that the disciples understood who Jesus was in light of the evil that was surrounding them. This is the reason, I believe, he takes them to Caesarea Philippi. They they could visibly see the impact of false worship, false gods. They could feel the sinister evil of the demonic powers there standing in that place. They could see the, the power and authority of Rome over all of their hopes of independence. So perhaps we see Peter's confession giving them a greater hope in the kingdom of God. They needed to be reminded of the threats against Jesus' kingdom. And friends, so do we. So do we. When you think about what's going on in your life, even right now, today, what is happening in your life today that you see as a threat to the promises of God that he's given to you. It's probably not the disgusting worship practices like at the Temple of Pan or the enslavement of your people under an imperial army. It's probably not those things. But maybe it's something like the struggle of a hard marriage. Or or maybe it's the, the waywardness of your own children from faith. Or maybe it's financial strains and pressure or depression or the loss of a friendship. What is it that is in your life that is causing you to feel threatened from the promises that God has given to you? How we understand Jesus impacts every belief, every hope we have in life. What we find here, what Peter is saying is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the King. Jesus is the Redeemer, the Restorer. He is the one that is bringing God's reign and the blessings of God's reign into your life. And so when you submit yourself to Him as King, you receive those blessings of the kingdom. We see this at the very beginning of Matthew's Gospel in chapter 5 when Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount. You remember the Beatitudes. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on, falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So why is all of this blessing given to us? What makes this true for you? What's the fact that Jesus is the Christ? It's the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. So when you are in that point in your life and you feel spiritually bankrupt, remember that because Jesus is King and you are His, the kingdom of God belongs to you. When you feel broken and tired, when the tears don't seem to stop, because Jesus is the Christ, you will be comforted. When you, when you feel like you're being taken advantage of because you're humble and other people are not, it's because Jesus is the Christ that you will inherit the earth. And when people say awful things about you behind your back or in front of your face, and they laugh at you, and they say all kinds of evil things about you, because Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, you will receive reward because the kingdom of heaven belongs to you. It's precisely because of who Jesus is that we can feel confident about the mission that he's called us to be a part of. So look at this next section. We see our accomplishment of Jesus' mission depends on his power and his authority. Look at the following verses, verses 18 down to verse 20. Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, this collection of verses has been hotly debated over the centuries. Some have argued from this passage that this is the beginning of papal authority and that Peter is the first pope. Others have focused upon the similarities between different words like rock, Petra, or Peter, Petros. And I think all of these conversations have their place. But I think if we come back to the setting in which the disciples find themselves, it gives us even greater clarity. Remember, Peter has just made this great confession of faith. And this is not only his confession, but it's the confession of the collective, of the disciples. There's agreement. All of Jesus' closest followers are believing this. But it's important to note that Jesus doesn't use plural pronouns here. He actually does use singular pronouns. He's speaking to Peter. He's speaking to an individual. <clears throat> he doesn't say y'all in the Greek. He just says you. It's not y'all's rock or y'all's church or y'all's confession, y'all's keys, none of that. It's just you. He's speaking to Peter, but he's highlighting Peter as being that functional leader of the disciples. And we see this as, as Peter kind of comes into this, even in the book of Acts. Now, <clears throat> if you can imagine you're with the disciples standing near the temple of Pan in the region of Caesarea Philippi, what you would see in front of you is an enormous wall of rock. Just enormous. 40 meters in height. Massive wall of rock in front of you. And carved out of the rock face are these various niches devoted to different gods. The worship of Pan, 
the worship of Hermes, even the worship of the emperor. And Jesus says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I believe, I think, what makes the most sense is that he says, you're Peter, and on this rock, even as he points at this massive rock and says, on this I will build my church. Now, he was to say it that way. How does that make any more sense than the other options? Well, I think the clarity comes in the next phrase. Look what he says in verse 18. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Now, inside that temple of Pan, there was an enormous cave in the back. Remember how I said people would gather together and they would practice human sacrifice and in this cave was that wellspring of the Jordan River. It was a constant flow of water from the mountains above. And the worshipers, they would gather and they would throw in sacrifices into the pool. And if the, the child would disappear and there was no evidence of the person downstream, then they wouldn't have to repeat the sacrifice. Otherwise, they would have to continue to do it. But the sacrifice was, was thrown into this water. And the surface of the water was believed to be a gateway into the underworld. Josephus tells us that in this particular cave, before, uh, uh, before an earthquake that occurred in 1000 AD, thereabouts, uh, nobody could find the bottom of it. They tried to plumb the depths. They could not find the bottom of it. So the people really believed that if you wanted to get to Hades, if you wanted to get to the underworld, that was the gateway. So what does Jesus say? He says, I will build my church on this rock and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. And when you think about how armies would take and destroy another army or if a nation was invading another nation, what would happen to that nation's capital most often? Well, they would raise the city. They would tear stone down after stone. They would demolish all of the important places so that there would be no memory and then they would take and they would rebuild that city on top of the ruins. Jesus is saying that even though the gods of this world and the empires that support them, they seem to be strong, his kingdom will destroy them all. His kingdom will be built on the ruins of the world's religions and the false kingdoms that have come before it. And there is nothing that they can do to stop it. Even the gates of Hades, even the gates of the cities of these, these, these empires, all of it will be brought down as Jesus advances his kingdom. And then Jesus says to them, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then he charged them to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, I've already said Peter is assuming that functional head of this group of disciples. We see this put into practice, as I said, in the book of Acts, as Peter serves as the primary leader, he preaches, he leads. And Jesus says to them, I'm going to give you authority over the message of the kingdom. You will have the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Now, what he's saying, I believe, is you're going to be able to swing the door wide open for the nations. 
so that the people of God can come into the kingdom of God, so that you can proclaim the message of truth of the kingdom of God. This is not, this whole idea of binding and loosing, it's not about forgiveness of sins, which is oftentimes what we, we, we think of. The, the, the words binding and loosening are actually very Jewish. They're very rabbinic words. These are terms that are, are related to uh, the proclamation and obedience to a particular message. In fact, Jesus speaks to this in the Pharisees' inappropriate use of binding and loosening in chapter 23. He says, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. He says, For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up, they bind up heavy burdens, hard to hear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger or loose them. They do all their deeds to be seen by other people. Jesus is referring to the apostles' proclamation of all of the things that Jesus has taught them over these three years. He's instructed them. And so as they speak the message of the gospel, as they bind their hearers to the gospel message, they do so, and it is there in earth and there in heaven as they loose, as they give freedom, so that they're not constrained by the things, the old way of thinking, but they're embracing the gospel, they, they are loosed in their conscience to be able to follow Christ more faithfully. Jesus is referring to this concept of, of Jesus' instruction. And he reminds them of this even at the Great Commission in, uh, in Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28, remember he says, all authority, where? In heaven and on earth has been given to me, and he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then he says, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We see this heaven and earth again. The disciples are given this delegated authority to bind and to loose, to instruct the people of God, to make disciples of Jesus. Now from this section, there are two important things you should remember Number one, we are not the ones who build the church. Jesus is. Jesus says, I will build my church. It's his responsibility. He uses us as the instrument many times, but Jesus is the one who builds. And secondly, Jesus is the one who gives the message to the church. So we rely upon what he says in the word, and we preach that word. We don't come up with something new. So because of who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the son of the living God, we can rest assured that there is no power in the world that can stop the gospel of Jesus Christ from going forth. I think of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 when he's talking about this gospel, this treasure, even in jars of clay. In verse 7 he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body, of, body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In the book of Romans, he goes on and he says that in all of these things, 
whether it's persecution or trial, he says, we are more than conquerors in him who loved us. You think about what we celebrate today. We celebrate 174 years. 174 years ago, followers of Jesus in Jefferson Town came together and they met and they established a local church. Now, this is a very long history for a church in America. Very long. And it hasn't been without struggle. It hasn't been without disagreement. It hasn't been without hardship. It hasn't been without trial. But I want you to remember this morning is that your history goes back much further than that. It goes back much further. It goes back to a, a small band of men standing in the region of Caesarea Philippi at the outskirts of a temple devoted to a God who is half goat and half man. It stretches back to a confession. And that confession is what empowers the church of Jesus Christ even today. Whether that church is meeting in a grass hut in Uganda or it's meeting in a building covered in Bedford stone in the east side of Louisville. The confession is what drives us forward. That confession drives us to love one another. That confession causes us to take the gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. Because the one whom we serve is Jesus. And he is the Christ, Son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the history that you've given to us, the story that we are a part of as followers of Jesus. We thank you, God, for the blessing that you've given to Jefferson Town Baptist Church. And we ask that you would continue your work of building up disciples in this community, according to sending them out to the nations. Father, we pray that we would be reminded, not just for the community of faith, the importance of this confession, but that we would be reminded of the importance of this confession, that Jesus is the King, the Christ. He is your son. God, that that would spur us on to personal holiness and obedience. Thank you for your word, we pray in Jesus' name.